In the midst of two class action lawsuits, Amazon's Ring is reporting its best sales ever. Meanwhile, Bose is planning to shutter all of its stores across North America, Europe, Australia, and Japan. And this just in, Payless Shoes may be returning to America. We've got the scoop and more. On today's episode, it's Monday, January 27th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by Carol Speakerman and Hanif Brown. Carol is the president of Speakerman Retail, a globally recognized retail consulting, training, and speaking firm. Carol is also a trusted Rethink Retail advisor and rundown regular. Hanif is the founder and CEO of FitMatch. Before starting FitMatch, Hanif worked in private equity, where he evaluated new investments across the retail industry and helped existing portfolio companies to scale their businesses. Carol, Hanif, thank you both for joining today. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. So the first topic of three we will go over today is Bose. They just announced they're no longer going to be a physical experience. So the audio equipment retailer announced earlier this month it's closing. It's 119 brick and mortar locations across not only North America, but also Europe, Japan, and Australia. They're citing a dramatic shift to online shopping in specific markets as the reason for closing. And they will continue operating physical stores in select parts of Asia, including China, India, and the Middle East. For the rest of the world, Bose is refocusing its efforts on e-commerce and third-party sellers. Carol, during this time when retailers are becoming increasingly experience-focused, everyone says DTC brands are now opening stores. Is Bose's plan to cut its physical presence a smart strategy? Well, you know, I've I've been saying for a while that the store is still the core. (laughs) You know, we found out, of course, that stores are no longer liabilities. They can be major assets for retailers that learn how to pull those synergies together between bricks and clicks. You know, they're just a great way to keep your brand out there. But, you know, you may remember that back in the early 90s when Bose went into this retail business, this owned retail business, they were framing it at that time as just an experiential opportunity, as a way to engage with their customers, a way to gather insights on new products. So Bose, by doing that, was basically tempering expectations that that would be a profitable operation, right? Well, 119 stores later, and the expectations start setting in. So I think that's what happened is, you know, initially they started with a sort of flagship strategy, and then they somewhat drifted into a larger scale operation, and the expectations were heightened as a result. So I think that Bose would have been better served to stay with more of a flagship model, just a handful of stores to keep the brand out there and introduce new products and do events and that type of thing. And then to really double down on those wholesale relationships, particularly you look at a retailer like Best Buy that really is a flagship location for so many of the brands that it carries, they can pick up a lot of that weight. But also too, you know, the shift to online shopping, that's a nice catch-all explanation for closing stores. It's a, it's a good go-to. But you have to also look at how Bose's portfolio has shifted, their product portfolio, because they've gone from everything being so heavily weighted toward these big you know, sound systems and solution sales that really benefit from demos and person-to-person interactions. And now they're doing you know, earbuds and headphones and things like that that can easily be sold in a digital environment. So I think as much as anything, the shift in their product portfolio rationalizes cutting way back on the stores, but I think they probably never should have gone to that scale to begin with. But all of that said, we're still going to be seeing these digital natives opening stores. 
stores are still a very important in the equation. Bose isn't even getting rid of all of their stores, just primarily in North America. So the store is still the core, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every brand has to have lots of them. And I think Bose certainly falls in that category. Store is still the core. You've been saying that. You think Bose should have never gone to that scale to begin with, but there's still a benefit to keeping a flagship model. And you think maybe that's what they should have done while focusing on their wholesale relationships. Hanif, do you agree or disagree? No, I I totally agree. Carol just mentioned something that I also want to reiterate where you see the headlines and you see some of these news releases and it seems like everyone is just copy and pasting the same rhetoric that because of the shift to online shopping, but not really sort of getting more specific. And while those macro trends obviously are there, I think it's a much deeper issue. As Carol mentioned, it's did they scale too quickly? Was the site selection as ideal as it could have been? Was it accelerated because of the shifts in product assortment? But when I think about just that category alone, when I purchase headphones, that's an in-store experience to me, especially if it's new headphones. The sound quality is very important. I cannot just read a review. Comfort, for me at least, is a big, big plus that has to be sort of one of the most critical items that um, I check the box for before I purchase headphones and other equipment. And obviously style. So I do think that clearly was a big strategic decision for them to close that many units in North America. And probably they do feel confident that they have strong relationships with their other wholesale partners. Maybe they're going to expand store within store to get much more experience-based retail through their wholesale partners. But, you know, for the most part, um, it seemed like it was a confluence of issues rather than the headline press release um, would make it seem. That's a good point. You know, it's it's so, a lot of these things become so black and white and they become pass or fail. You know, closing stores isn't necessarily a failure. It can just be a shift in strategy. So totally agree with that. You have to parse all those details to get the full story. Mm -hmm. And I love how Hanif said audio is an in-store experience because I think a lot of listeners would agree with that and have gone into stores and tried out new headphones or audio equipment to get the experience before you buy. I will say, you know, if you look at some of Bose competitors, like Sonos, they didn't even open their official store until 2016, a few years ago. All of their operations were through different retail locations like Best Buy, etc. So it's interesting that Bose had so many stores to begin with, like Carol said, but there was a bit of a tech boom, I think, in the 1990s, early 2000s, where it made sense. And Carol, to your point, you said the equipment is just becoming smaller in some cases where, you know, a lot of the purchases people are making are earbuds and things you don't necessarily need a personal selling experience to buy. Yeah, great call out. Yeah, I agree. So it'll be interesting to see how they'll keep driving awareness and what brand partnerships they will form because that was mentioned in their press release. So the next retailer we'll talk about made big news last year, Payless. It made history because it liquidated all of its U.S. retail locations last year, and that was 2,100 stores, the largest liquidation by store count in U.S. history. A recent press release showed that they are shaking off their bankruptcy blues and reportedly planning a return back to the U.S. retail landscape. 
I don't know exactly what that means yet, but it's interesting to note they still have a presence in South America, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East, where the company has collectively sold 25 million pairs of shoes over the past 12 months. So Payless new leadership team says it's focusing on efforts on new technologies and streamlining and optimizing customer experience. Hanif, I wanted to pass this to you first and ask what challenges do you foresee Payless facing as it attempts to re-enter the U.S. market? And what do you think this will even look like? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting story. And clearly their uh, bankruptcy was so large and, and prominent. And so you wonder, as others emerge from bankruptcy, you know, what their playbook will also look like. So I do think that it is almost a people are watching and seeing how this one goes because, you know, there are a few others in their shoes that would want to re-enter the market. I do believe that Payless is such an iconic name where there's sort of this embedded amount of perceived value. And where I think about value right now and the concepts that are and the retailers that are doing very well on the value end of the spectrum, whether it's the TJ Maxx's or the Target's or whatever it may be, I do think that there is space for them still in the U.S. market. However, I think as they re-enter, they really do have to think about doing things differently in terms of, for one, reducing their square footage. I do believe that the Payless experiences that I remember just seemed like a lot of inventory. And as you think about, you know, retail of the future, it really should be about three things, in my opinion. One is showrooming, right? And decreasing your inventory count, really giving the customer showroom off inventory. Two is about the experience, educating the customer through that experience in really data-driven ways. And three, it's fulfillment. You know, so your store, your four walls should really be used to drive your fulfillment on the back end, not necessarily be used as a vehicle to deliver inventory to customers. And so I think if they take a very aggressive look at decreasing those, you know, that square footage and focusing on those three areas, they already have such an iconic name and an embedded amount of perceived value in a macro environment that really supports value at this point that they should emerge successfully as long as they don't go too quickly uh, because of the halo of the brand name. That's a great take. And, you know, Hanif, I think hit on the key word, and it's also the word that Payless is using. And I think it points to the direction that they're going to be going, which means they won't be competing in the same arena as they were before and hopefully not making the same mistakes. Hanif was saying it's an iconic brand. And it's interesting, Payless keeps using that term as well. And you also look at their choice of their CEO. Now, this guy came from a mega licensing company. And there's a lot of talk about branding in their releases. And that's just what you think about is how good is the brand. Mm -hmm. So to me, this points to Payless taking a licensing and intellectual property monetization approach. I think that's what's going to kick in next. And that's going to be their next chapter. And this also would point to them, I think, having a much more efficient business model to where they can re-energize the brand through partnerships rather than attempting to rebuild their physical scale. I I really don't see them doing that. So they can let manufacturers or even other retailers serve as their licensees 
They can license the Payless name for various categories. They can do shop and shop concepts, you know, any number of partnerships with others that already have the physical space. And then they can just watch the guarantee and royalty checks roll in. At least I think that's going to be a big part of their strategy. But also speaking to what Hanif was saying, you know, hey, it's a well-known brand. Everybody's heard of it. I think they're going to have to strike while the iron's hot. Memories are short and consumers move on to other brands. So while they do enjoy that recognition, I think they're going to want to launch this next stage strategy sooner than later. Certainly. And I think you had a really smart point about the CEO and his background that tells us a lot about what might happen. I love your prediction that they're going to take the licensing and IP approach and potentially have store and store formats. And I love, Hanif, what you said about retail of the future, decreasing inventory count and focusing on customer experience and fulfillment. I think those all will funnel into what Carol said in terms of not making the same mistake and competing in the same arena as they were previously. Yeah, I think another analogy to this um, is the recent Toys R Us comeback mm-hmm. um, and how they came up with sort of this re-energized new format, still using the iconic nature of the um, company to drive momentum, to drive press, to drive awareness, um, and you know, still use all the relationships that they once had with those toy vendors to present something new to the market that could be scalable. I know it's early days, but at least that's an analogy as to how using a strong brand name could really be reused almost with the right strategic context to um, give a very value-add experience in this new age of retailing. Well, what's interesting is, you know, I work a lot in the licensing world and, you know, have for years, and it really speaks to a shift in the licensing world too, because it used to be all about creating a cool brand and then putting it out there and signing up licensees in various categories and then expanding those categories. Well, now you see this, the licensing industry sort of taking over as a next stage strategy for some of these defunct retail brands. So it's changing the intellectual property world, and it's also becoming a completely different strategy for some of these retailers that haven't made it in the brick and mortar space or have had to scale way back. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with it. Hanif, you made a good point about Toys R Us because they are you know, making some changes, especially in the U.S. market. But I do note, uh, I was speaking with the director of marketing for Toys R Us Canada, which a lot of people don't know is separate, and um, they are doing really well with their stores. And Payless is still having operations in South America, Southeast Asia, Middle East, and doing well. So I think the licensing approach is good. But what about margin, Carol? Is that a concern? And are they still going to be able to offer the competitive price points that they're known for? Well, you know, that all depends on who they partner with. You know, the licensing model, when it's humming, is pretty great. You don't own the inventory. You can forge these direct relationships. Other folks have to hold the inventory and manage all of that. And again, you just sit back and, you know, collect the guarantee and royalty checks. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but that's why we saw the emergence of so many pure brand marketing portfolio companies, you know, several years ago. And some of them are now having to recalibrate their strategies because it just became such an efficient model to just own the intellectual property and then have everybody else carry the burden of inventory and so on. I think it is not going to be the entire strategy for Payless, but again, hiring that that powerhouse licensing CEO really does 
point in that direction or that being very heavily weighted toward that strategy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well said. And I'll quickly move to our last retailer we'll discuss. It seems a little unfair how much we have uh, them on the rundown, but it is Amazon. So we're talking about their product, The Ring, which is their video surveillance company. Last December marked their biggest sales month to date. It grew in the U.S. by 180% compared with year over year. So the news comes amid a slew of reports highlighting the problems they've faced with hackers and growing public concern over the privacy issue. And we attended NRF earlier this month, and data privacy are still even more so on top of everyone's mind. In fact, they even had uh, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan there to talk on the matter. Carol, as the world becomes increasingly more connected, how much privacy are consumers willing to sacrifice when it comes to tech? Well, unfortunately, I think the question assumes that consumers are still in the driver's seat. You know, I think the problem is that a lot of consumers don't know how much privacy they've already sacrificed and how far things have gone beyond permission and how many decisions have already been taken out of their hands. So to me, the ring story, yeah, it's interesting by itself, but it really is more than you know, just sort of a cautionary tale about privacy and transparency. It does speak to you know, something I've been talking about for a while, the growing scrutiny around Amazon in general, because Amazon... One of the, you know, doggone unfair things about Amazon is, is it's not just a retailer. You know, it's competing. It has so many other pieces in its portfolio, so many other business models, and it has its tentacles extended into all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So for them, you know, Ring isn't necessarily a profit center. Of course, it's just a blip in their overall story, but it is a critical link to things like facial recognition and other capabilities that Amazon is harnessing for government contracts, you know, and all kinds of things. So to me, this isn't just a consumer privacy issue or even a data privacy or transparency issue. It's quickly evolving into having concerns about tracking and even surveillance, you know, not to be alarmist, but, you know, you may have seen that the New York Times has actually been doing a a series on that and how Mm -hmm. far all of this has Mm -hmm. already gone. And it extends way beyond just concerns about retail. So I think on the consumer side of things, unfortunately, I think it's going to take more of a form of backlash and reaction as consumers gain awareness of what's already happening more than it's going to be proactive decisions. Or let's just say that any proactive decisions that consumers make, frankly, might be sort of meaningless or a little bit too late. And I don't mean to be doomsday about it, but I think things have progressed beyond what a lot of folks realize. That's not to say that retailers don't need to give a nod to transparency. They don't need to play along with that from an image perspective in the retail space. But, you know, I want to hear from Hanif because I think when we were talking earlier, Hanif, you were saying that you had some really interesting statistics on, you know, how new generations of shoppers are perceiving all that. And that's really going to dictate where it goes next. Yeah. Well, I do agree with you that, you know, part of the issue is that, you know, a lot of us don't know how much data you know, is being collected and where data really lives. So I'm, I'm this founder and CEO of FitMatch, and we basically are an online, offline, sort of omni-channel technology platform that uses biometric data that we collect in very sort of uh, high-experienced AI fit shops across the country at the retail level. So we actually focus a 
99% of our time and effort on understanding data and providing through a value exchange biometric data of our customer base very privately and safely to brands. And those brands now have incremental information on the customers that you know we provide them with to target them based on biometric data. If you really think about it, when a brand spends dollars advertising on Facebook and Google, they really don't know anything about on the biometric side in terms of the body shape, the fit profile, the fit preferences of the customers they're targeting. And so we're using data to ease that friction um, so that the brands can actually target people based on their fit. And so we're seeing some really interesting stats and behaviors. And one of the, the biggest things that we're seeing is a generational gap. You know, typically our average customer today is 22 to 24 years old. And she, because it's majority women right now, she has sort of grown up in an environment where there's not a mistrust of technology where there's not a concerns so forth around data protection. And so we're getting very little friction from the Gen Z slash millennial market. And um, one of the, the, the biggest things is that they're saying, look, if I can interact with this platform for three to five minutes out of my life, and you guys are going to connect me in this very unique way to brands, that's a value exchange that I'll sign up for any day of the week. And when you frame it like that to them, there is basically no friction. And for us, we have to be very upfront around the data we collect, the fact that, you know, they're signing up and giving us this data. But once they're, you know, the biggest takeaway for us is once there is real perceived value exchange Issues around data and data privacy and protection, especially for that Gen Z slash millennial market, really isn't as massive versus other generations um, and age groups where there, I think, is still a larger mistrust of data and technology. That's interesting. So you're saying the awareness is there. It's not like they're blindly saying, oh, yeah, I trust you. This is cool. I'm in, you're saying they're very aware and they're still opting in. Exactly. So cool. we expected about 30% to opt in. We're seeing numbers at 80 to 90% based on the demographic are opting in, but they understand by opting in, they expect the value exchange, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one of these things that like, if that value exchange isn't perceived clearly by them, then yes, there's issues around, well, you know, what am I doing? Am I giving too much? You know, what will you use it for? But once you can clearly articulate that, um, you can break down a ton of barriers in terms of what they're willing to sacrifice and their perception of data transparency. Well, I think too, though, you know, when you're looking at, you know, your business as kind of it's a a very self-contained ecosystem, that's one thing. And, you know, and I love your terminology talking about value exchange. I think that's something that every retailer should just really be thinking about. Like, what are they truly giving a value back for what they're asking? But when you look at 
a platform like Amazon to where there, it goes so much further and there really isn't the full awareness of how far it goes. I think that's where, you know, the scrutiny is really starting to flare up and perhaps mm-hmm. for good reason, because again, Amazon is not just a retailer. So when you're talking about Amazon, it goes way beyond just a conversation about retail yeah, and privacy. I totally agree. They don't like to be surprised is sort of my biggest takeaway is that, yes, they know that that's happening. They're signing up for it. They're signing up for ring security at home, all that stuff. Well, the minute that you say to them, okay, well, we're actually using it to track something else, that's when the red flags go off and then they start to perceive the entire system negatively. Another example of this really quickly is Ancestry DNA. Um, yep. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so they're sharing now really valuable data with these large pharmaceutical companies that I assume will not only use it and aggregate that data to make better drugs, but will actually start in very similar ways to how we are doing things, targeting people individually based on things that they notice in, let's say, your DNA composition, right? That puts you more at risk. I think I read somewhere where they said like 80% of the people who do it agree to share their data with these big pharmaceutical companies. When the article came out, everyone was like, wait, you know, what's this or whatever. But when you actually ask these customers, they're like, yeah, I did it because I sort of knew that it was going to be an advantage. And so that's what we're seeing is that you have to be completely transparent, not surprise a customer, but um, that value exchange education is so important. Absolutely. And I personally, back to just the clothing fit example that you gave um, from your background and your company, it, I would personally love for there to be uh, you know, a time where I can do online shopping and see what the clothes would look like on me uh, instead of the model that they're showing. So I think potentially that's where we're headed. But Carol, your point on Amazon, maybe having, you didn't say this exactly, but the way I interpret it is it could be a long play with Ring because it probably is not a profit center for them right now. But imagine how much data that they're collecting. And I don't think people truly understand when companies talk about sell the data marketplaces and third-party sellers and anonymizing the data, there's so much data, even though it's anonymous, they can almost track back to who you are as an individual. Yeah, it's all part of it. You know, Amazon doesn't, you know, to their credit, they don't dabble in things just for grins uh, or even just to grab a little bit of market share here or there. It all fits into a larger story. It's a small jigsaw piece that's part of a larger story or they wouldn't be doing it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've been t- saying for a while that, you know, there was a, a <laughs> for many years, poor Walmart, you know, got all the heat and, you know, everything from putting companies out of business and even some, you know, data concerns and all of mm-hmm. that. And now, wow, is that shifting? And, you know, Amazon is finally starting to get some of that scrutiny and people are starting to realize how those tentacles extend into other businesses and what the ramifications of that might be. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can track how many times you come and go out of your house or anyone that lives in your house, the number of visitors, the number of deliveries from competitors, because they are competing in that space as a uh, they have their own fleet in some some areas. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. And I just wanted to end end the rundown with It sounds like you both agree, but if there's any disagreement, let me know because our recent guest on the show, Jacob Pat, CIO of Champion Pet Foods, previous CIO of Canada Goose, 
He said, if you talk to some of the millennial generation, they're willing to sell absolutely everything they have on themselves if it can make their life better. And if you can give them a positive experience, they're like, okay, thanks, great. Do you guys 100% agree with that? Is there any disagreement there? So personally, I have to be a little bit careful on how I answer this. (laughs) (laughs) I do believe that, as he puts it very well, if, you know, they are willing to actually do that data exchange, value exchange with you and go to an extent that I think a lot of people don't think they will go to if it is clearly articulated to them the benefit. Mm-hmm. So in um in a very roundabout way, I do strongly agree with what he's saying. And as for me, you know, I'm wary of generalizing statements like that, you know, that that are sort of unequivocal. Because I think you anytime you generalize about any group of people, even from a generational standpoint, there are always going to be exceptions and you know mitigating factors. But I think Hanif has talked really articulately about those mitigating factors and that's something and and how to mitigate the concerns that might be there with even if it's with a small minority of these new generations of shoppers and to you know to troubleshoot on those factors and to simplify the language around it to where it doesn't become overly complex and you know throw up even more flares but i think by and large yes i think this new generation of shoppers are definitely much more, in a sense, transactional about it. You give me something, I'll give you something, done deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well said, definitely. Carol, Hanif, we had a great show today. Thank you both for joining and sharing your insights on these three topics. It was a pleasure. Great to be with you. Great to meet you, Hanif. Of course, same here. Likewise, Julia and Carol, this was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.